Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us for this episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm Razia Iqbal. Today I will be chatting with Hannah Barnes, who has been shortlisted for this year's prize with her book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children, published by Swift Press. Time to Think addresses urgent questions surrounding the Gender Identity Development Service, JITS, based at the Tavistock and Portman Trust in North London. It's a work that reflects unprecedented access to thousands of pages of documents, including internal emails and unpublished reports and well over 100 hours of personal testimony from JIDS clinicians, former service users, and senior Tavistock figures. Time to think details the scandals behind the NHS's flagship gender service for children. A very warm welcome to you, Hannah, and many congratulations. Thank you very much, Razia. Let's start with a really, really easy question. How does it feel to be shortlisted for this um, really extremely prestigious nonfiction prize? It feels incredible. I'm hugely honoured and over the moon to be recognised in this way. As you say, it's the most prestigious prize in non-fiction here in the UK. And to be recognised is just it's beyond my wildest dreams. I want to go back to the beginning because this book really ne- nearly never got published. I mean, you had quite a lot of refusals and some no answers as well when your agent sent the book out. Just tell us a little bit about that because I think people would be interested that something that ends up being shortlisted for a prestigious prize nearly never got published. Yes, and I'm so grateful to Swift Press that that they did publish it. But as you say, before that, um, the proposal, the book proposal was sent to 22 other publishers, none of whom wanted to, to take the project on. And, and just to explain that the, the proposal that I had written um, was very, very detailed. It was about 17,000 words. And it sort of set out what the book was going to be and what it, importantly, it wasn't going to be. So anyone who has read it will know that it's not a polemic. It's a calm, balanced, compassionate, even detailed piece of investigative journalism. And, and, and the proposal set that out, who I would talk to and how I would you know, double check everything that was in it. And interestingly, um, of the 22 publishers that it was sent to, 12 responded to my agent uh, saying, and, and, and interestingly, there were, there were no negative comments. There were things like, this is such an important story, it has to be told, and then unsaid in parentheses, but not by us. Um and ten, and 10 didn't reply at all, which I'm told is very strange, that generally speaking, you'll get a yes or a no from a publisher more than 90% of the time. And, and, and also let's stay with the very beginnings of this because uh, the work in the book started out as uh, a BBC investigation for the Newsnight programme, for, for, uh, at which you were the, the kind of head of the investigations team there. So just talk about the, the, the way in which the, the germ of the story emerged inside kind of editorial discussions at the programme. Well, I guess it started, I was I was changing role on the programme. So I had been one of what we call an output editor. So one of the people that decides what will go in any given day's programme. And then I went back to doing 
what I really love doing most, which is storytelling, really, talking to people and, and, and journalism. And I had read, this was probably the beginning of 2019, and there was starting to be a fair, you know, a bit of chatter about the the gender service at the Tavistock in the press. And really, a, a very important report had been leaked uh, to, to the newspapers. And this was a report by a gentleman called Dr. David Bell, which relayed the fears, the concerns of 10 of the staff at JIDS, which was about a quarter of, of the London base. And that sparked my imagination, really. And I just felt I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't know if what they were saying was true, but it was pretty serious if it was, and it deserved to be properly looked at. So I started researching and then we thought, well, this is a health story. And so together with my colleague at the time, Deborah Cohen, who was Newsnight's health correspondent at the time, we thought, well, where do we start with any health story that's part of the NHS? We'll start with the evidence base. And, and that's that's what we did. And, and it sort of spiralled from there, really. Tell us why the book is called Time to Think, because that's really at the heart of the the scandal that you have, have unearthed here. Well, there's three main uses of this phrase, time to think, really, which is why I chose the title. So the first is that time to think was the original rationale put forward for puberty blockers, which is the core medical treatment that, that JIDS could refer young people for. And the idea was that you had a young person who was very distressed about their developing body in puberty, their gender identity, how they perceived themselves didn't match their biological sex. And therefore, you can imagine that if your body is changing in a way that makes you even more identifiable as that biological sex, then that's very distressing. So the idea was by pausing that process, you can take some of that distress away and allow that young person time to think about themselves, about their gender identity, um, without having to worry that their body's changing in a way they don't want. Now, on paper, that that makes perfect sense. It's a very rational argument. But what these, well, what clinicians have found out in gender clinics across the world, really, is that puberty blockers don't seem to work in that way, that they don't really appear to provide time to think in a neutral way because no one really comes off them and in excess of 95% will then go on to the next stage of medical transitioning by, by taking hormones. So that's the first uh, explanation for time to think. The second is that in the incredibly busy years at JIDS, so really sort of 2014 to 18, there was no time to think. So I had dozens of clinicians talk to me about their time there who were trying to do their very best for often very distressed young people. But on occasion, they couldn't remember who they were seeing. They were that busy. They had caseloads of in excess of 100 children. And they couldn't reflect on what was going on, the changes they were seeing, the, the evidence that appeared to be changing before their eyes. And the third use of time to think is really a question for all of us, for society. Is it time to think about how we best care for this group of young people who will have very different needs and probably will need different interventions uh, rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. 
I mean, I, I think one of the reasons um, among many that you have been shortlisted with this book is that, that as you say yourself, that you you weren't interested in writing a polemic and, and this is a thoroughly researched book. I wonder though what you make of the kind of exponential rise of the numbers of young people who were referred to the Tavistock Clinic. You know, you you do deal with that in the book, but I, I just wonder if you'll just reflect for us on on the the change that took place, that it went from prepubescent boys to predominantly or increasingly girls. Yeah, and I think this is the $64 million question. Why the rise and and why, in particular, the very dramatic rise in girls? Um, I think with lots of these questions, there's a danger of being too simplistic about it. I think the answer is probably more complicated than many people think. On the one hand, you often hear people say, oh, it's because of social contagion, a word I never use in the book. And on the other, I guess, if you like, at the other end of the scale is, oh, it's because there's more visibility and more acceptability of trans people. I think both of those probably feed into it and then some more things. So I spoke to young people for the book who had very, very different pathways into their gender issues. So for some, I think it probably is the case that, that, that having visibility of trans people helped them put a name to the way they'd felt since very early childhood. It made sense suddenly. Oh, yeah, that, that's me. That's how I'm feeling. I'm trans. For others, there was absolutely an issue of uh, many of their friendship group were also identifying as trans, and it gave them a popularity boost, and, and, and those stories are in the book as well. And I think on top of that, it's undoubtedly the case that for some young people, it was a way of making sense of their unhappiness. Many were struggling with mental health, with anxiety, with, with self-harm. And here was a quite simple solution that might explain why they felt different, why they didn't fit in. And it gave them a new community where they were accepted. For others, undoubtedly, it was a reaction to not wanting to be same-sex attracted. And it was a way of not, you know, loving the people you love without, without having to be gay, frankly. Um, there, there were lots of different reasons. I think partic particularly for the girls, we now live in an increasingly sexualized society. Porn is ubiquitous. And, you know, several of the clinicians said to me, well, what's it like? growing up as a teenage girl in, in, in that world where there's an expectation of being uber feminine, whatever that means, um, and having your first sexual experiences with, with boys and or girls who, who have been exposed to that kind of pornography. I think there's, there's, there's so many different things that, that explain it and, and not one thing in itself will do it justice. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the book clearly tracks the the experiences of several of those young people who were treated by uh, the the unit but but the main voices in the book are are these clinicians who became concerned about the 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 policy the treatment the way in which the clinic was was being run what is so extraordinary and comes through in your book loud and clear is how how reluctant some of them were to speak up when they did or how they were silenced when they did speak up? 
Yes, I mean, I think the NHS makes lots of noises about how they welcome people speaking out, but we've seen it time and time again and with any major story of something going wrong in the NHS that it always starts with whistleblowers and frequently they're not listened to and ignored and shut down and and vilified and and that's exactly what happened here. And I think the reluctance to speak out was a fear of not wanting to be branded transphobic. But it was also it struck it strikes me that there was this really quite unique atmosphere at JIDS, particularly before it expanded hugely, and that it was seen and they were encouraged to see themselves as a family. And 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 therefore any any criticism was was wrongly perceived as personal criticism of, of the leaders of the service, for whom, you know, many of these staff had a great amount of respect and they liked them. And criticism just wasn't dealt with in in in, in a professional way. And and actually, you know, many of these people, they liked their colleagues as well. And I think, you know, what one one clinician sums it up perfectly at the end, really, which is this dilemma that they felt, which is do I speak out and screw over my colleagues is the way they put it, but help these young people? Or do I stay silent and protect my colleagues whom I like and respect very much, but do a disservice to these young people? And I think the important thing about the book is you have to remember that this story is about people. It's obviously about the children and young people that that were treated at JIDS, but it's also about the people that work there. And we all are torn as human beings by different loyalties and it... That that's what ex- explains why it's so complicated, I think. And and the, you you mentioned that one of the reasons why people may have been reluctant to speak up was because they were scared or nervous that they would be labelled transphobic. I mean, you are writing this book at a time when the kind of public discourse on this subject has been toxic and really terrifying for anybody who chooses to speak out. How did you how did you make decisions to 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 not be drawn into those sorts of atmospheres if you like that were just in the ether culturally? I think that it's our job as as journalists and particularly I've very recently left but for the last 15 years I've been a journalist at the BBC and I take our core value of impartiality incredibly seriously, and I still do. And I think if we can't discuss these very important, difficult issues as as national journalists, then we're doing something very, very wrong. Now, the way I've approached it, though, and the way we always approached it at Newsnight was that this is fundamentally a health story. I don't question people's identities. I don't obviously deny the existence of trans people. For me, these are very, very separate things. Is part of the NHS, which is trying to help a group of very distressed, vulnerable young people, a group described by the people that work there as some of the most traumatised young people they've ever seen, is it providing a safe service? And is it producing treatments or recommending treatments that have a strong evidence base? Now, that to me is relatively uncontroversial. You may laugh. I mean, that... but. I don't see why questioning a treatment and the quality of care being provided is questioning the group of people it's aiming to help. I really don't. And, and I think I, I obviously received some abuse, as, as, as you'd expect, but I think by, by sticking to that 
it's you you can you can navigate some of the toxicity and and when you say you received some abuse this was after the book was published or people who found out that you were investigating in the in the writing of it well just over the years i mean i've been covering this for what four and a half years now we always got i and together with deborah always got more abuse after or after a bbc broadcast i have to say than i did with the book and i was very pleasantly surprised um but it comes with the territory. I mean, you know, people, journalists with a platform on social media get abuse all the time over any number of stories. So I, it's not something that I, I dwell on. I think overwhelmingly the response has been positive and I'm absolutely delighted about that. The idea of money being at the heart of this as well, that the, 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 the way in which the treatment and the direction the treatment was going with this unit became a money spinner for the Tavistock. And and, and that that feels just a, a, astonishing in some ways that, that all of these other things that you're talking about were also there too. Obviously, they're at the heart of the book. But but the the financial incentives, say, say a little bit about that because that, that will interest people. I think the financial incentive is another one of these these grey areas. So it's something that came up in conversation a lot, both with people that had worked in the wider Tavistock and Portman Trust and with many of the clinicians who actually held very, very different views about JIDS itself, some of whom spoke very positively about it. But they were all very aware that as time went on, the money brought in by JIDS from having this very secure, guaranteed income, if you like, from the central NHS was increasingly important to the survival of the overall trust. Now, what no one said was people turned a blind eye to to children being harmed because of money. It's not as simple as that. It was far more subtle. People suspect and feel that it just made it so much more difficult to do what was needed to really address the concerns that so many staff had. Because at the back of your mind, or the back of someone's mind, was, well, how are we going to do without this money? But, but as I say, I don't think anyone told me it was this conscious, malicious decision, but they just felt it had to have an impact. Because combined with the adult gender service, which, which the Tavistock took on 2017, 2018, gender services in total were bringing in a quarter at least of of the trust total income. Now, bearing in mind, this is this trust actually, which has a world renowned reputation for talking therapies, really. It's a mental health trust. And yet this very different setup was propping it up. The the international dimension to this is is really interesting because the the direction that the the unit took came out of um, a study that was made in a gender clinic in in the Netherlands. It, explain a little bit about how that connected to what Jids decided to do. That they felt that their their strategy in treating young people was had been conservative up until that that. Dutch report came out. So the pioneers of the medical treatment for gender-related distress in children are are a team from the Netherlands, as you say. And really, it stemmed from the idea that they were working with trans adults and they saw that for some, it was very upsetting that they couldn't pass, if you like, as adults. They, they, They 
particularly for the, those who were biologically male and were trans women, that, that that caused great anguish. So the idea was that if you could start your transition earlier, um, originally in sort of in late adolescence, so from, from, from 16, um, you could get better results as adults. Because I think it's important to acknowledge that even going back 40, 50 years, all of the studies are quite poor, well, very poor. But if you took any group of gender non-conforming, very gender non-conforming children or gender distressed children, there would always be some who would go on to tra transition as adults. The, the minority, but there would be some. So, um, And the Dutch pioneered this approach that essentially said for a very small, very small, highly selected group of children who had experienced this sense of gender incongruence from very early childhood, here was a way of relieving that distress and, and, and helping them. And so this became known as the Dutch Protocol, which stipulated that if you met certain criteria, uh, you could start puberty blockers at 12, followed by hormones at 16 to help either masculinize or feminize, and then go on to have surgery at 18. And when the Dutch sort of wrote about this, they were very cautious about it to start with. And they just said, look, this, this appears to be a, a good way of helping this very distinct group of young people. Now, JIDS became under increasing pressure to offer the same service in the UK um, at that point. They were treating children from all over the UK. And so they did the right thing. They, they started a research study of their own. They accepted that the, the evidence base was really quite limited. It was from one clinic in one country, although they didn't accept advice for a better design of that study uh, that would have allowed them to, to make stronger conclusions. But then what they did next was really quite striking. So rather than wait for the results to come out, bearing in mind they'd said we're doing this because there are very limited data, they just rolled out the early blocking of puberty anyway uh, in 2014 to anyone. And they did away with that age limit of 12 and provided a young person had started puberty, they, they could potentially be eligible. And then they rolled it out even further to young people who in fact would have been ruled out by the Dutch study. So Initially, you had to be psychologically stable. You had to have experienced your gender incongruence from very early childhood. You had to have a stable family life. And JIDs actually were very open about the fact that they gave puberty blockers to people who didn't fulfill those criteria at all. They, the leaders of the service spoke to the UK Parliament about that in 2015 and, and acknowledged that that's what they were doing. And Data came back a year later, which suggested that this approach wasn't working. In fact, the young people on the study, which had largely met the criteria of the Dutch, but, but they, weren't, they weren't faring better at all on the puberty blockers and some were getting worse. And I think that's what's so difficult to understand is while it's completely understandable to set out on this path, thinking that you're going to help a very distressed small group of young people, and that was compassionate. When data came back that suggested that wasn't really working, they then didn't change direction. That's a very long answer to your question. I apologise. No, no, no. I think that it's so important to have the, the kind of clarity um, of, of thinking that you lay out. So d don't apologise for le the length of answers. Bring us up to date, though, because there was a review that was commissioned by NHS England that recommended that JIDS should close so what's the latest on the Tavistock's work in this area? 
Well, the latest is we are beset by delays, really. So initially, it was planned that that JIDs would close in the spring of 2023. That hasn't happened because the first new services that will replace it, which will operate quite a different model of care, aren't ready. Um, Now, the first was then said to be opening this autumn or fall for uh, international listeners, uh, and that's not happening either. So the latest we have, which is only from uh, a week or so ago, is that NHS England expects JIDs to be fully closed and the first of two new services to be open in spring 2024. And where that leaves young people at the moment is really in a quite dire situation. So JIDS is unable to start any new appointments. It has a it has about a thousand young people on its books that it's seeing, but it won't take any new patients, if you like. I mean that in a, the broadest possible sense. And there's no service for the eight thousand or so young people waiting to be seen by either. So it's pretty awful for thousands and thousands of young people who who need and want help. I mean, there is obviously a broader social and political context um, to everything that we're talking about, and and it's you don't you don't ignore it, but you don't tackle that social and political context head on in the in in the book. Um, I just wonder what you think needs to shift in the kind of national conversation, which can often feel so loaded and so rife for attacking each other, that people involved in this this subject end up just attacking each other and it doesn't really move forward? I think, well, I, one of the things that's pleased me most about the reaction to the book is it's allowed conversations to start where in places where they, where they hadn't. You know, I, I've appeared on public service radio in, in Australia and, and in the US and, and they hadn't had conversations about the, the, the weak evidence base underpinning these treatments before. So, so that is a positive. I think we have to remember that at the heart of this story are, are young people. And I think that's forgotten a lot of the time in, in some of the, the coverage. And we, we can't lose sight of that and we have to be compassionate. Um, but I think it goes back to something I think I said earlier that I think it, it doesn't do trans people a service to, to deny that the treatments that they're being given at the moment as children are, are not well evidenced. And, you know, the trans people deserve as high a standard as, of healthcare as, every, as anybody else. And, and I think if it's seen through that lens, then I think hopefully some of the heat can be taken out. And, and also an acknowledgement, I think it's undeniable that different young people will benefit from different treatments. And, and part of the problem with JIDS was that the only treatment it could offer, and that's not to say that every young person got this, but the only treatment pathway it could offer was a referral for puberty blockers. And it's quite clear that that isn't the answer for each and every one of these young people. Hannah Barnes, thank you so much for continuing this really important conversation and um, good luck with the book um, going forwards. That's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also once again like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued and generous support for this podcast. 
Join us back here in the coming weeks where Prize Director Toby Mundy and I will continue to speak to the remaining 2023 shortlisted horses. The winner of this prize will be announced at an award ceremony at the Science Museum, generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation, on Thursday the 16th of November. And the winner announcement will also be live streamed across the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction social channels. If you're interested in finding out more about the shortlist, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok at BG Prize. Thanks again for listening. Until the next time. Bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.